Good heavens, a podcast about the universe with Wayne and Dan. Good heavens, it's been one year of podcasting about the universe with Wayne and Dan. Congratulations, Wayne and Dan. On this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and Dan talk about planets as if they were brownies. Well, kind of. You'll have to just find out what's going on. On this episode of Good Heavens. Well, hello, Wayne. It is... uh... It's the 30th of September, 2018. What's significant about today for Good Heavens? Hi, Dan. It's good to be back with Good Heavens. Uh, it's just about a year ago today that we started our Our first podcast. podcast. We've, I don't know how many we've done, but it's been a year. We, our first two podcasts, do you remember what they were? Uh, the first one was about the eclipse of 2017. Yes. And the second one was about Tycho Brahe and Johann Kepler, I think, right? No, the second one was about Jupiter. Oh, you're right. Yes. Got him out of order there. Then we did Tycho and Kepler. And today we're actually going to talk about all the planets. Yes. Sort of. How did it all get here? How did it all form? Ever since uh, Copernicus made that suggestion in 1543 that the sun might be at the center of our little neighborhood, we've uh, we've been puzzled ever since by how it all came to be, right? That's right. And now we know about other solar systems because there there are other stars with planet systems around them. So it's it's really interesting to compare our system to theirs because ours is kind of special. Yeah, we, we have found, I think, uh, in reading your recent paper on the solar system, uh, your notes on it the other day, um, you had a fact that there were some... 3,700 or 3,800 known planets outside of our own solar system, and that a lot of those solar systems uh, are kind of the reverse of ours. We have rocky planets near the sun and gas giants out in the backyard, Yeah. and a lot of these other solar systems have the gas giants in the front yard, and all the rocky guys are hanging out back. <laughs> or if they know what their rocky planets are, but the structures that they're finding of these solar systems... Uh, our, ours seems to be atypical. Not not typical, but atypical. Yeah, it's not. ours is not very typical. Because these other systems, mostly the planets are very close to the star, but uh, they, there's a variety, uh, and uh, they don't know, or most, most of them are gaseous or, or rocky. It's actually. hard to tell because we there can't. There are a few of them they know are rocky, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it kind of requires special things in order to figure that out. Yeah, now most of those 3,700 planets we can't see. They right. are, we've talked about this in other podcasts, where they can look at the star itself and note that it wobbles or darkens. Right. Uh, and that wobbling and that darkening can indicate the presence of a planet. Yeah, um, or they may see when the planet goes in front of the star, so it kind of makes the light dip. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, I wonder if you did a Facebook poll. I'm not on Facebook, neither are you, so we can't do this. <laughs> but, I, you know, it's funny. You think, how many pictures, how many artist renditions have we seen of the solar system? And yet... In all of our modern technology, we don't have uh, an aerial view of the sun and all the planets. We've never that's, seen that. That's right. Uh, it's, it's kind of hard to get there to You're do right. that. We've, all of our observations have been from this little planet. Uh, in Voyager, the Voyager 1 satellite in 1980, uh, Carl Sagan had influenced, uh, encouraged NASA to turn the satellite around and take a picture uh, of all the planets, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a. It wasn't like one single image. It was a. It was a snapshot of all the planets lined up, and that's where we get the pale blue dot from. Right. But other than that, we don't have a. Uh, we don't have a panorama of the solar system. They don't. It doesn't exist. Well, it wouldn't. It wouldn't look very good because you couldn't all, see it. All you would see is a, a, a little point of light that would be the sun. And you wouldn't see the planets. It'd be so far apart from each other that right. it'd be, you wouldn't be able to see it all. Now, the, the basic gist of it, I know this is probably oversimplifying everything, but planets, the reason they're hard to find, Wayne, is because they don't shine their own light. They're not, they reflect light, the sunlight, but they don't, they're not light sources themselves. Right. Uh, but they, uh, in our own solar system, we're fortunate to have a good variety of different types of planets. We have a, a, a hard, rocky one at Mercury. We have Venus, which is similar to Earth in size, but it's real hot. In the Very hot. You can't vacation. And then we have there. a cold one that's dry. It's like a cold desert. And yeah, that's it's Mars. Mars. Right, which it's, it has 11% of the mass 
Mars is the 11 percent. What's the fact on that? It's um, it's yeah, about, about 11 percent of Earth's size or mass. I think it is. Uh, I think the mass is, but yeah, it's small compared to Earth. Very it's small. A little bigger than the Moon. But so our ses- our our little neighborhood is set up to where there's four rocky planets yeah. on the inside. Are in the closer right. to the sun, right? Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Mm-hmm. Then you have uh, the asteroid belt. It's not like what you see in Star Wars. They're not all grouped together like that, but it is an asteroid belt. And then outside of the belt, we have the gas giants. We have Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Right. And then maybe some other gas giants out there that we haven't yet seen. What do you think of that? Uh, I doubt if there's more planets, but who knows what they'll find next. Uh, but is this, isn't that a peculiar, nice four and four? Four rocky planets and four gaseous planets. Well, it's easy to remember, isn't it? It looks like a conspiracy, like somebody set it up that way. Uh, maybe so. I don't know. Uh, so anyway, we're going to talk about today, all that aside, we're going to talk about your recent um, paper and presentation. Uh, you went to a conference not too long ago this summer. Uh, and talked about uh, Wayne Spencer's theory on uh, how you think the solar system formed. Correct? Yeah, well, see, what I was doing, Dan, was uh, reviewing the current theories from scientists, and I've been keeping up with planetary science and the origin of the solar system for years. And it started when I was a teacher. I was a teacher in a Christian school, and our book was so old that it really wasn't helpful at all <laughs> on the subject. I was trying to teach sixth graders from this old book, and, and while we had the book that was so old, the in the news there was all these great new pictures and neat things from the Voyager missions. Yeah, and and I thought, well, somebody should deal with this new information. So your interest in the planets started out of kind of a necessity of supplementing the textbook. Yeah. So you're but, not right. neither you nor I are do this professionally for a living. But we keep track of it because it's interesting and it's fascinating and uh, it helps us to have insight into the glory of God, I think. Right. But um, to be clear, you know, I know we've said this before in other podcasts, but you and I, you're not you're not formally a planetary scientist. You've just developed a, a layman's hobby that's turned into semi-professional writing, right? Right. Now, I do have a master's degree in physics, so I have some physics background that helps, but I've just tried to keep pursuing this and uh, I like to try and look at this from a Christian point of view. Yeah, that's important. And, you know, I believe in uh, creation as described in the Bible. So what you end up with dealing with is uh, you run into the question of could, when this is when a certain fact is the way it is in the solar system, could this come about just by natural processes and time and chance, or could it? Does it require supernatural creation? Right. So we're what we'll be t- discussing today uh, are two different kinds of explanations. Right. So modern science will look for a what we might call a mechanistic or a natural explanation. We are going to talk a little bit about those, but we're also going to talk about a personal explanation. So we we were just talking before we turned the mic on. Uh, I just had a brownie here at Buongiorno in South Lake, the home of uh, Good Heavens when we do our live podcast. Uh, very good brownie. But do you know, well, you know I just told you this uh, before the mic came on. The brownie is technically believed to have been invented in 1893 at the Palmer House Hotel by Bertha Palmer, the wife, the young wife of the business magnate, Paul, uh, uh, not Arnold Palmer, but uh, Potter Palmer. Potter Palmer. He built the Palmer House Hotel as a wedding gift to his young bride. It burned <laughs> down in the 1871 fire, and he rebuilt it. Wow. Yeah, and so in 1893, Bertha had come up with an idea for a dessert. She asked her chefs to make a dessert, uh, the hotel chefs. And so in 1893, the the year of the Chicago World's Fair, Bertha came up with the brownie. And uh, more or less, it's officially where uh, confectioners believe the brownie got its start. So she made these brownies and put them in little brown bags, and ladies could take them to the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. So some people were walking around the fair nibbling on brownies, but... As I told you earlier, the uh, Charles Yerkes, his 40-inch telescope was on display, which is the telescope at the Yerkes Observatory in Chicago. That was on display in the 1893 World's Fair. So you okay. can have a Bertha Brownie and see the world's largest telescope in 1893. So brownies and astronomy go together. They do. Yeah. They do. Now, I say all this because there are two explanations for brownies. 
So you can think of a planet like a brownie, right? You have yeah. the you have the soft, gushy right. exterior. You have the hard, you know, chocolatey, nuggety interior. However, you want to dis- <laughs> dis- describe a brownie. Right. But there are two explanations for a brownie. There's Bertha, mm-hmm. right? She Bertha and her chefs, the right. personal side of creating the recipe and all right. that stuff. And then there's the secondary explanation of of the all the physics of cooking. And they're both legitimate explanations. But when we're talking about planets, Wayne, modern science mostly goes after the physics of cooking. Yes. They don't have any use for or reason to bring God into the equation. There's no personal brownie maker, to, to not sound blasphemous or anything, but, but there's, no, there's no personality behind the causality of the planets. Right, but you know what, Dan? When I, I spent a long time, months, digging into the details of these new uh, theories on the solar system, and when I got done with, with it all and I turned my paper in, I started going back to looking at Isaac Newton a long time ago. Yeah. And Isaac Newton, you know, he was the first one to explain that uh, gravity explains the orbits of the planets. And uh, he showed that that was true. So um, Newton made comments about the solar system after he published his stuff on gravity. So... He basically believed it required supernatural creation. God, God put the planets in, in their orbits. Right. And uh, so that's a personal side of it. So that's yeah. The scientists think we can't we can't include the supernatural because we don't want to think about God doing this for us. We want to just deal with the the natural the natural right. effects and the physics we know of. Yeah. And it's got to be limited to that. But it doesn't have to be just that. No, and, and in fact, it's interesting because that claim itself, um, you know, the universe doesn't tell astronomers they can't invoke the supernatural. Right. That's that's a predilection of human beings. That's Whether, an assumption. It is an assumption. No planet or star or sun or galaxy ever told an astronomer. Right. <laughs> you know, you can't, you must leave theology out of the science classroom is not a dictum of the universe, right? That's right. Um, so... It does what Newton proposed and what you had just said. A lot of people, a lot of skeptics, a lot of uh, secular scientists will say that when you invoke God, you're, you're arguing from the God of the gap. So you don't know, so you just throw God in there. But once you find out, but that's like saying, well, we know how to make brownies, so we don't need Bertha as an explanation. Well, you still need an explanation for the putting the, the ingredients together. Just because you have the ingredients and the oven and the temperature and the time doesn't do away with the confectioner chefs, right? And so right. that's kind of what we're dealing with the solar system. All different kinds. We have eight different kinds of brownies, nine if you want to include Pluto. Uh, I heard Pluto's making a comeback, by the way. The Astronomical Union can't figure out definition there, of a planet. So. There's debate about it, yeah. <laughs> I think Pluto just needs to be in for nostalgic purposes. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, a uh, couple of verses from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. I have uh, Isaiah 48, 12, and 13. Uh, the prophet says, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth. And my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. So God can command, you know, in in the Gospels, Jesus commands the wind and the wave, and the disciples are amazed. Mm -hmm. Here, Isaiah is telling us that God commands the sun and the stars and the planets, and they obey him. (laughs) And I wondered, you know, I I was reading in John this morning, uh, the first chapter in John, and I was wondering if planets could talk. The planets and stars could talk and tell us. This is what they would say. They would say something like what John the Baptist said. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Before me. Yeah. <laughs> so if you ask a star or a planet, what are you? As the Pharisees and the Sadducees <laughs> asked John, the stars and the planets would say, I am not him. Just like John the Baptist. Right, right. right. He has existed before me. That's I am right. just a messenger. Yeah. Yeah, so and you have a verse as well. Yeah, this is Isaiah forty-five eighteen, and it also mentions the earth. It says... For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Okay, so there's a specific intentionality with our little planet. It was a specially made brownie just for us and for God's glory. He made it to be inhabited. It was baked just for us. Baked just for us. Now... 
let's get into very briefly if you could set up or describe in very simple terms what are the current theories about how our solar system came to be current secular or modern scientific theories about the formation of the solar system for for lay people like myself what's okay. the deal what's out there so there's a part of this that's uh, not new, and it's been around for a long time, and then there's a part of it that's a new idea. So the old part is the idea that uh, there's a nebula in space. A nebula is just a cloud. A big, big cloud, of, much bigger than our solar system, and it collapses, contracts down as it cools, and as it contracts, it starts spinning, and it spins into a disk. The disk collapses collapses and the, the sun forms in the middle of this and then when after the sun has formed what you have is a disk of dust and gas around the sun mm. and uh, that's the starting point for the solar system and, and this was this is allegedly theoretically this all happened by itself yes no divine intervention no mention of God right you just had a gas cloud collapse. The very dense center of the gas cloud becomes the sun. Right. And then the sun is like a, a sort of a, the sprinkler head just shooting off uh, little brownies that turn into little particles <laughs> that coalesce and accrete, right? Into yeah, but it's kind of in reverse because the sun is pulling everything to the center. And so, so the anchor for everything. So it's pulling it. stuff in and then, then stuff gets pulled in and coalesces together. Right. Uh, and then uh, the planets form. So that's the basic gist of that. But that theory is under, since we've discovered these 3,700 other exoplanets, uh, that theory is uh, in jeopardy, I guess, if you can say, or at least it's in question right now, correct? Well, over the years, there's been various problems with the idea that have been come up. And that part of the idea is really the same now. But the part that has problems is after the disk is, is there. Okay, so the question is, how do you get from a disk of dust and gas to planets like Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and so on? Well, and the other interesting thing, and we've talked about this before in another podcast, the idea that this the sun is the spinning center, the planets sort of line up on its axis, the spinning sun. It's supposed to right. have a perfect... So the axis is the... Is that if you have a tennis ball, you drive a stick straight through the tennis ball. The sun, if you think of that stick as perpendicular, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and the sun is spinning along that axis. The planets should be at a 90-degree angle to the axis of the sun, accordingly. Right, it's like you think of a merry-go-round. Yes. The center of the merry-go-round is where the, the action is, right? Yeah. It's really where it's spinning. But everything on the merry-go-round has to move in the same direction. Right. So that's the idea of how... Everything started its motion in the solar system. But the weird thing had to get its motion from that initial spinning disk. But the weird thing about our little solar merry-go-round is that the center, the sun, is tilted seven and a half to eight degrees downward. So the 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 planets are off Uh of the solar axial rotation seven and a half degrees. So by the time you get out to Neptune, there's a huge difference between the angle of the sun that's right and the planet neptune and so that's that's something of an enigma problems. yeah that's something and, of an enigma. Dan, there are other solar systems that have a bigger angle than that some some systems have uh this angle between the, the star and the planets is more like 60 or 90 degrees or something it's wow wild oh and then we have uranus out there in the backyard who's rolling along on its side in the opposite direction if you're on uranus you can see the sun rise in the west and set in the east. Right, and and Venus is sort of spinning the opposite way, the opposite direction of the other planets. Right. So things don't always so it's like fit a, the pattern. It's like a it's like a tree, a Christmas tree from the Nutcracker. You know, Uncle Drosselmeyer's little <laughs> crazy little world. It's not it's not as normal as you would you'd think. There's a lot of special, unique, strange things going on. So, um, all right, so we have a basic gist of this. I want to read just something really quickly from Neil deGrasse Tyson. He wrote a book in 2007 called Black Hole and Other Cosmic, uh, Death by Black Hole and Other Cosmic Quandaries. And in uh, chapter 29, in just a few pages, 
he describes the solar system and the universe this way. These are just words I took right out of the three or four pages. Impact, climactic upheaval, impact, shooting gallery, collisions, chance, accreted, accretion, blobs, species-killing, ecosystem-destroying impact, asteroid collisions, dumped collisions, devastating, explosive event, melts the ground, blows a crater, impactors, strike, impacts, bombardment, unrelentingly sterilized, debris, impactors, impact zone, and ballistic business. <laughs> it sounds like a dynamite factory. Or sounds like a dangerous place to be. It, it sounds like a dangerous place. And, of course, if you're talking about human life, of, of course, the, it's, it's kind of dangerous. But, but I, I, I read that because that is kind of the, the understanding of how the early solar system formed. It was like a giant billiard table with all these... All this debris crashing into one another as, as planets are accreting and things are swirling around. There's all this matter and energy and motion. It just seems like a lot of chaos. So the question for the modern astronomer is how did this apparently orderly system come out of such, uh, such a right okay. of just colliding things? So let's get into your theory. What, what do you think? What have you presented? What is your idea? Well, let's think of this in stages, okay? So, uh, and I'll kind of go through the story of what scientists believe about the solar system. So it starts with dust. Now, imagine small dust particles, tiny little things, and uh, they can stick together in space. Okay. Static electricity might stick them together. Sure. Things like that can happen. But as they get larger, when they, if a dust particle gets bigger and bigger from other dust sticking to it, mm-hmm. it gets to a point where when the dust particles start hitting each other, they tend to start breaking each other apart instead of sticking together. There's because the, uh, is it the if angular they momentum? Bigger, they get bigger? They get bigger. Their gravity is stronger, so they, they're moving faster. When they hit, they break each other apart. So watch out for the dust bunnies <laughs> under your bed. They could turn into planets. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Dust. So the, the big question, and this has been researched for a long, long time, and it's never been solved. Okay. This is an intractable, insoluble problem, apparently. How can small solid objects grow into big solid objects? Right. That's the question. It's an unsolved problem. And that's why they're always invoking, or generally invoking... <clears throat> The idea of high-energy collisions, explosions, and impacts, because that's yeah. the only thing that they can conceive, one of the only few things in which they conceive how matter would stick together. Right. You would need high energy, and you would need a large impact, and you would need stuff to just be heated up so hot that it would just naturally glue itself together. Well, that's the, the problem, is that they don't naturally stick themselves together. No. There are times when... Uh, there are rare situations where they have stuck together, like if there's some ice on two objects that collide, some of that ice may melt momentarily and then sure. refreeze, and it may hold them together. But that doesn't happen most of the time. Most of the time, they just break each other up to pieces. So the basic the, the point where they have a problem is how do you get objects up to about one kilometer in size? So that's like about now that's the process. A less than half a mile. Now what we're talking about is the process of accretion, correct? Yes, that's what they call it when solids are pulling together by gravity and sticking together. And we see this in everyday life. Dust accretes yeah. under your bed. Dust accretes in the lint trap. Dust accretes. Yeah, but that's not gravity. It's not gravity. That's, that's things like static electricity and other things. That but we do have examples of accretion in our own lives we can relate to it. Right. But in space, there's a different, sort of a different kind of accretion, but we're basically talking about solid matter smashing into each other and sticking together. Right. So you might get an object the size of your car yeah. that might grow to that size, mm-hmm. but for objects the size of a car to get to the size of a football stadium, that's a problem. That is a big problem. Yeah, I mean that—that that you really, when you break it down like that, you think of a dust particle turning into an NFL football stadium or a yeah. Major League Baseball stadium. How did that single bit of dust accrete to such an extent to accommodate seventy-five thousand people? Right. So this is an unsolved problem. And so since they have not solved the problem, when they do the big computer simulations that would put all the sophisticated uh, uh, physics into the simulation, 
they start with objects that are at least a one kilometer in size. So the the when you hear of when you hear of researchers doing computer simulations of how the early solar system may have formed, what you sort of have to sort of realize, and it should be obvious though, that that that, that the scientists are front loading assumptions right. into the software. So the right. software is performing something that it performs out, it, you know, it, the idea is we're going to plug all this data in, let the computer run and see what happens. But the very idea of programmers and software and the computer demonstrate that anything that they come up with in a computer model was the result of intelligence putting the data into the computer. Right. So uh, they start their simulation with an object that's already big enough that gravity will be significant. Okay, so the computer models don't explain how the one-kilometer car got there. Right. The giant car in the stadium got there, whatever. And they start even with bigger objects than that. In fact, what they usually do is they start with many, many, many one-kilometer size objects. Sometimes they use 10 kilometers. And they have a smaller number, maybe a few dozen, of larger objects that they call planet embryos. Mm. Planetesimals, is that? No. Planetesimals, the little ones. Okay. Planet embryo is a big one. Hmm. So a planet embryo could be about 1,000 kilometers in size or could be the size of the moon, for example. So these models are assuming the existence of these large-scale objects. Yes. So when you have a few big ones and lots of little ones, this is what they call oligarchic growth. I've heard that. What, what is an oligarch? An oligarch is a small group of people that dominate a larger socio-political or right. corporate yeah, body. Yeah, you have a few powerful people. A few people powerful people, and right. A, and a lots of little peasants that aren't important. Right. But So a couple of takeaways from this in this computer model simulation of oligarchs. Number one, they front load the idea of these big objects pre-existing. They, right. they don't explain how they accreted to that size. Right. And number two... Um, there are physicists and scientists programming in the data to run. So all it does seem to suggest is you can't have a solar system without intelligent input. Right. Yeah, that's, that's what it does that's seem right. to be the case. So this is their formula or their recipe for getting planets. Is you start with a few, a few big ones, the planet embryos, with lots of little objects, the planetesimals all around them, and then the big ones will dominate in their vicinity. The gravity will pull other objects onto it. I have a uh, quote from uh, Stuart Clark, who's a Royal Astronomical Fellow in the Royal Astronomical Society, and he says this about the oligarchal model. He says, some computer simulations will have 40 to 60 rocky planets that fought it out for supremacy, ingesting their rivals and growing into the planets we see today. (laughs) With this dog-eat-dog scenario in mind, astronomers have taken to referring to the situation as the oligarchic scenario. So right, the, the yeah. bigger ones, the, the winners, the one that we have, the eight that we have, or nine if you want to call Pluto one, uh, ate up the competitors. The eight up the little ones. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's, right. it's interesting, Wayne, how similar yeah. this scheme is to sort of an evolutionary development of biological life. It is very like evolution it, in certain ways. Yeah, yeah. The, the bigger ones survive and the yeah. little ones don't. That's right. <laughs> you know? That's right. Yeah. But uh, that hardly explains how Pluto or Mercury with its was it Mercury or Venus with a giant magnetic core? It's Mercury, isn't it? Um, Mercury has a. It's a giant bowling it's field. A, yeah, it's a giant iron bowling ball with a layer of dust on it, basically. Yeah, and uh, they thought it wouldn't actually. They yeah, it's it's relatively small compared to. It's it's about a little bit larger than our moon. So. Why didn't the magnetic field die out by now? Is the question. Right, right. Anyway, that's a little that's a little side issue. So we have uh, we have the computer models, we have the oligarchal model, and let's go from there. Okay, so we're going to skip the problem of how you get these um, these big solid objects. We're just going to call it a problem. We're going to start our computer simulation with those objects already there. We're going to skip this one step one problem here, and then the next step is. Um, you have to, you have lots of gas and you have solid objects in this disk. And what happens is the, the large planets form first. Mm-hmm. So guess which one would form first? It would technically be Jupiter. It would be Jupiter. Yeah. It's the big dog in the solar system. Right. So it formed first when there was more gas around and available. And it should have. Uh, the, the current theory says that it formed 
out away from the sun where there wasn't all the rocky right. stuff. It right. just took in all the gas. So um, where Jupiter is located now is a little little bit beyond five astronomical units from the sun, about a little over five times as far as the, uh, from the sun as we are. Like 5.2 AU or yeah, something. Yeah, 5.2 or so. Well, they're starting uh, a new model, a new theory, with, that makes Jupiter fo- uh, closer to the sun when it forms. And then moves out? three and a half. AU. So what it, what it does is, this is called the Grand Tack model. Okay. And it starts at about three and a half AU. It migrates in mm. and then stops and migrates back out again. Okay. So what makes this happen is it's the, the dust and gas and the disk, and it, the way it passes by the planet near the planet it can it can make it migrate like a beach and, ball on the on the ocean maybe bouncing around on the waves perhaps well it's, it's mostly about which way the gas is flowing and how how the gas is flowing around it but so jupiter forms first it's it's got more gas to, to kind of build itself from and then saturn forms in a slower way and it it doesn't get big enough to migrate with Jupiter until a little bit later. So Jupiter starts migrating in. Saturn starts to migrate in also and catches up with Jupiter. Hmm. And when Saturn catches up with Jupiter, they sort of lock into this resonant motion where uh, Saturn is uh, one and a half... Uh, times the period of Jupiter. They have a, a timing relationship that makes it uh, so Saturn becomes big enough and it catches up with it at just the right time so that it will uh, put the brakes on Jupiter. Okay. So Saturn kind of locks into this motion with Jupiter and it stops the inward migration of Jupiter. Pulls it back out. And it starts to migrate back out, back out again. So then Jupiter and Saturn migrate out. So this is this is using the sailing terminology. You know, mm-hmm. you know, a sailboat is tacking against yeah. the wind. That's kind of the idea. Mm-hmm. Jupiter and Saturn tack against the wind. They move back out. And then uh, that sets them up in the right place to be for the next model. The other model of the solar system has to do with the outer planets, and that's called the Nice model. The outer or the inner planets? The outer planets is, is the Nice model. Okay. The inner planets is the Grand Tack model. So, would, but Jupiter and Saturn are the outer planets. Would... Well, they came in. Oh, they came in. So what happens is when Jupiter comes in, it's so massive. It brings a lot of these planetesimals and other objects oh, okay. with it. Okay? So Jupiter causes many objects to come with it. To kind of get bunched up together in a narrow zone near the sun. All right. And our uh, in Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars were four of those planet embryos brought in that, by Jupiter that just happened to survive. Okay. And there could have been more that didn't survive. Some of them uh, fall into the, into the sun. Some of them might get kicked out of the solar system altogether. So the rocky ones that we have, according to the Grand Tech model, are the Jovian entourage. These are the yeah. little ones that follow Jupiter inward. And then decided to stay while Papa went back out. Well, Jupiter would pull objects with it when it goes back out, too. Okay. But it put, since it puts so many objects in a narrow zone, it sort of makes a lot of collisions. Like a popcorn machine. And it's better for, for collisions to build the planets. So okay. Objects stick together. And so Jupiter brought some ingredients into the sun, threw it all into a, a salad bowl, tossed it, some stayed, some went back out. That's right. Okay. It's That's salad, kind of complicated. Salad bowl's a good... Uh, <laughs> I like the salad bowl. So analogy. Jupiter came to the sun's party, brought a salad, they tossed yeah. the salad, and then the, some of the... Mixed assumed, it up and then left. Mixed it up and then he took off. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm not going to eat salad. I'm going to go back out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's it seems like an awfully uh that seems more choreographed than the nutcracker. Yeah, it's not. It's <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of complicated explaining. There the so if it if Jupiter were to migrate in too fast, then Saturn couldn't stop it. Ah. And it would just keep going and crash into the sun. If Jupiter didn't stop, then that would destroy all these objects in the inner 
solar system, and Earth and Mars would probably never form. So here's what Dr. Stewart says about the oligarchical model of the solar system. He says it's, quote, a chaotic period ensued in which oligarchs were flung all over the solar system. Many collided and coalesced to become the familiar planets of today, but not all. Near misses were as likely as collisions. And according to the computer simulations, a near miss between an oligarch and a burgeoning gas giant planet could be enough to throw the smaller objects into exile. So that is Stuart Clark. So the the original oligarchal model is kind of chaotic. It's like a giant pool ball game going on. It is chaotic. And uh, it just seems like for all of the natural, what seems like a very orderly system, seems to have been birthed in a great deal of chaos. But yet even the models you're describing, Wayne, seem to require a lot. If they're true, they seem to require a high degree of precision. If Saturn's going to, like, tow Jupiter back out, it seems like it has to be the right mass, the right speed, the right distance, all of this stuff. Yeah, the critical thing is uh, the relationship between the size of Jupiter and the mass of Jupiter and the mass of Saturn has to be within a certain range or it won't work. Yeah. See, like, if Saturn doesn't grow fast enough, it's not gonna it won't be able to stop, stop Jupiter. Right. And if Saturn doesn't migrate fast enough, see, Saturn has to catch up, migrate faster than Jupiter and catch it. Hmm. Has to Jupiter be the right mass. Jupiter starts first, and that's another problem. How does Jupiter form in the first place? And it, it has to sit there for a few million years and form and get real big and fat right. before it starts to migrate. Right. The if brownie it, has to cook before it comes out of the oven. If it migrated too soon, that would ruin everything. Yeah. And, and Dan... Everything in the whole solar system hinges on Jupiter. Right. If Jupiter gets wiped out or ends up in the wrong place, then the whole solar system is different. And right. And we, we may not be here. Because Jupiter tugs on the sun, and Jupiter is believed to be the cause of the asteroid belt between uh, Mars and itself. Yeah. Uh, Jupiter cleans up the solar system and flings little debris away from us um, but that, that, but even more than that that's true but Jupiter acts like a, a sort of anchor for all the other planets mm. it keeps the motion of the uh, all the other planets stable it's located kind of in the middle and it's way bigger than all the other planets it's almost like so a counterbalance it, it's it's like um, a dynamic uh, anchor for the planets. It, it keeps the other orbits stable. If Jupiter moves, if you miss, if you monkey with Jupiter's orbit, everything else it has an effect on the inner solar system and the outer solar system. Because Jupiter is placed with a large mass right there in the middle. All right. Uh, so Wayne, tell us a little bit about the. Uh, we have the the uh, tacking model. Right. And so now there's the Nice model. What is that? The Nice model is actually named after the city in France, Nice, France. So uh, scientists met in Nice, France and to start working on this model. and So the model came out of that meeting, and that's why they call it the Nice model. But what it does is it, it starts with uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, but Neptune is probably inside the orbit of Uranus. Mm. Neptune is a little bigger than than Uranus. Mm -hmm. And so they suspect it started closer to the sun than Uranus. Uh And then Uranus and Neptune were sort of swapping places for a while until they came to their current arrangement. So uh, once Jupiter gets into its own place, like where it is now, it pretty much stayed stayed there and didn't didn't move much. But Saturn uh, had a major effect on Uranus and Neptune. So Saturn keeps migrating a little bit, and then Uranus and Neptune migrate a lot. Of course, there's the problem of Uranus just being the complete oddball of all of, all of its brethren. It lays on its side. Its north pole is pointed at the sun, and it rotates on its axis in the opposite yes. direction. So that's still a problem with it. Th- this whole idea doesn't explain that. And in fact, Uranus has moons that are lined up 
tilted over. They're all lined up perfectly. With uh, and their orbits are all aligned the same way as uh, Uranus. The, the moons are a big problem. We're explaining in Uranus. So Uranus is like a top that's knocked over and it's rolling on its side, and all the moons are rolling on its side with Uranus in the yeah, same but direction. It, it looks like it was never knocked over to me. It, it looks just like looks it, like it was set up that it way. It was deliberately put there that way. Yeah, because you have to explain again. If you explain it being knocked on its side, what do you have to do? You have to invoke a collision. A big collision, and then then you have chaos again. More Th- chaos. Things do not line up right, and they, the speeds don't get right, and the, the moons are not in circular orbits anymore. So uh, the outer planets all migrate outward, and so this they start closer together at the beginning than they are now, and they migrate out. Hmm. And Uranus and Neptune migrate a long way. This is the Nice model. Okay. And so there's all kinds of things that scientists are trying to explain about the solar system from this migration. Uh, so it's true that the Greeks, when the Greeks named these things planetai, that literally means wanderers. And so at least with these two models, mm-hmm. they're consistent with the idea of the motion. They wander. Right. There's a lot of wandering going on with these things. Yes. All right. Or the, the Dance of the Planets. If you want. <laughs> there used to be a software uh, called Dance of the Planets. And okay. That, and now it really is what it what it's really doing. is what they're. This is what the real science is now. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, if if I were the one who was proposing how it got here, I would simply say God created it supernaturally, and the the planets were pretty much created in. In their orbits as they are now. So, Wayne, why wouldn't that be? I can hear some objections to this. Why wouldn't what you just said, why wouldn't that be a God of the gaps argument? What we were talking about in the beginning of the podcast, why is what you just said not a God of the gaps argument? Because science has gaps, too. Right. There are always limits of what you can explain with science. And they haven't really explained all these gaps. And again, we're not, we're not taking a physical gap and replacing it with God. We might have all the physical gaps at some point in the near future, but that doesn't do away with God any more than explaining how to cookie brownie does away with Bertha and her chefs and the recipe for brownies. Right, and if you compare our solar system to other systems with planets, other stars that have their own set of planets, our system is very special in that Earth is at the right distance, in the right temperature range, and our sun is is fit for life and plants to grow on Earth. You know, the light from the sun is fit for plants. Right. The atmosphere lets through visible light that you don't see. Visible Filters light. out all the other dangerous light. At Venus, you wouldn't see visible light much. Mm. And uh, you know, so our our planet and our the whole solar system is arranged for our safety on Earth. Jupiter protects the Earth from comets and other things that come from the outer solar system that keeps them from. Uh, coming close to the Earth, and uh, Earth is the right atmosphere, the right temperature, and uh, other systems are not don't have everything set up right. And even even some other systems that have the planet and the habitable zone, it's the right temperature range. The star often would make it impossible for life because of the radiation from the star. So, in other words, if you found out the recipe for the solar system, that doesn't do away with God any no. more than finding out the recipe for Bertha's brownies right. does away with Bertha. We can say she did it and not know how, or we can say how she did it, and that still doesn't, even if we know how she made it, that doesn't get rid of her. Right. And so we're not saying that, oh, once we find a natural explanation that does away with God, even if there was a natural explanation, even if somehow we could figure out how God physically did it, that doesn't do away with God at all. So it's That's not right. it's not a God of the gaps. It's just simply a personal cause, a personal cause. Uh, laws don't cause things; they explain things. Right. And so that's that's what we're talking about. We're not we're not arguing a God of the gaps. Once they if they figure out a, a planetary system, uh, how everything came together, that does not finally do away with with God's involvement in it. Correct. Right. And I found uh, some comments from Isaac Newton from long ago Okay, that uh, he was trying to explain to a theologian at Oxford uh, about gravity. Oh yeah, that's I've read that. You shared those and, with me. Uh, he said there had to be intelligent design and there had to be supernatural action by God to put the planets in motion. Hmm. Gravity cannot explain you know, gravity alone can't explain it. Dan, we have lots of facts about the planets. 
we've been we've sent spacecraft out there to take great pictures of them. And, right. And I love those pictures, and I love the exploration of the solar system. Absolutely. But um, we that doesn't mean we've explained everything about it. How right. That's it got what I'm here. saying. Yeah. How the, the, the basically the how it to got know here. What it does now is one thing. To, to explain how it got here is completely different. We're still in the dark about that. Right. Scientifically speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what's the gist of, of Wayne Spencer's theory about the formation of the solar system in just a few minutes here? So uh, I go along with Genesis chapter 1 in Scripture, and, and Genesis has God creating everything very quickly in, in, a, in a week. Mm-hmm. So in, in, like in Exodus 20.11, puts it this way. It says, for in six days the Lord created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Hmm. puts everything in six days. And so on the fourth day is when it mentions the moon and uh, the sun, right? Mm-hmm. He actually made earth first. Mm-hmm. That doesn't fit natural, the scientific No, and he made the sun and afterwards. Then, uh, on the fourth day, it has the moon and the sun. So I think probably the solar system was made on the fourth day uh, when, when the moon was made. Yeah, it seemed like the it, – it would be like, uh, you know, here in Texas – a couple of years ago, Jerry Jones built Texas Stadium, the new stadium for the yeah. Cowboys, and it would be like he set the whole stadium. He built he built the seat, like seat one A. Let's say yeah. that he, <laughs> he built the whole stadium around seat one A, and he put this seat one A in, and then he built the stadium around seat one A. That seems to be what we have it's in Genesis. Like building the, the best seat for him first, right? And, and then he built everything. a stadium around that's it. That's right. Yeah, it's and I think like that's kind of the way that Genesis <laughs> describes how the Earth was made. Except the, God gave us the best seat. Right. We have seat one A. And then everything else was built around our seat. That's right. I wanted to read something from uh, a popular, our popular uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's coming out with a new Cosmos series, uh, another spinoff of Carl Sagan's original 1980 Cosmos series. It's coming out next spring again on Fox TV and mm-hmm. National Geographic, but it's a very secular approach to the universe. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson in his 2007 book uh, Death by Black Hole it says that uh, if asteroids and meteorites and uh, supernova and planetary collisions and all that stuff doesn't threaten to kill us, he uh, likes to remind us here on Earth that grizzly bears want to maul you. In the oceans, sharks want to eat you. Snow drifts can freeze you. Deserts dehydrate you. Earthquakes bury you. And volcanoes incinerate you. As if to say, the Earth is not a habitable place. Yeah, but Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't account for Genesis. No, he and doesn't. Genesis says that God first created the earth, a different kind of place, and there was no carnivory. Animals didn't eat each other in the beginning. Right. Well, the sin entered the world, and then we, we don't know what it is. So Adam and Eve's sin changed the world. It literally did. It really did. And if you don't think that that's true, just think about the impact of sin upon the world, how oftentimes what you see in the headlines, whether it's in politics or war or whatever is making the news— is oftentimes the result of some decadent human behavior. Yeah. So you can't say that, I mean, physically we don't know everything that befell the universe when Adam and Eve fell, but certainly the current state of affairs here on our planet and perhaps in the universe, we don't know how far the extent of the fall it went, but uh, this world was broken and death entered this world. And uh, the amazing thing about this is that God didn't, abandon this world to death he came into this world and died with us that's right and so he's going to restore it all to uh perfections one day but in the meantime we have time to uh get right with god and to learn about him now right uh dr tyson concludes that uh if the universe is designed it's a quote stupid design and that uh, he doesn't mind religious discourse. He says that religious belief does not belong in the science classroom. But it's good to remind Dr. Tyson that the universe did not tell him to exclude theology from the science classroom. That's right. And when you say that you're excluding theology from the science classroom, you're doing theology. You're making a theological presupposition about theology. And you say that it has no place for science. But the universe, if you're a complete naturalist, there's no command in the universe that forbids you to talk about God in a science classroom. That's right. In fact, the early scientists usually did not make that assumption, and they believed God created it. So we can look at things another way. We don't have to look at it Neil deGrasse Tyson's way. 
He's great in explaining science. He's a good sci- He's an excellent science communicator. Very entertaining to watch. Very entertaining yeah, to listen is. to. Um, I'm probably going to watch most, if not all, the, the new series. But the final assumption of the solar system and the universe is a completely naturalistic one. Right. And uh, he's looking at the what he believes is poor design in the universe. And uh, that's kind of his argument for... Uh, God's non-existence. He's never come out and said that he's an atheist, but he's always quoted, often quoted by skeptics and atheists uh, whenever they we talk about the universe. I think he's more of an agnostic. Yeah, he tends to be, but when it comes down to the intelligent design question, uh, he's definitely not a proponent of that. Right. Um, so, but that, but to say that something is not, uh, to say the universe is not intelligently designed is to know what an intelligently designed universe would be. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting to me, Wayne, we give Nobel Prizes for people who discover things in the universe. Right. What does that say about the things they actually discovered? If a man made a planet or a star, we'd give him a Nobel Prize, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, Arno Penzias <laughs> and Robert Wilson got Nobel Prizes for hearing a hiss in their Hornbell AT&T antenna. That's right. They got a Nobel Prize for listening to static. Yeah. Of course, that was what they considered to be the background, cosmic background radiation. But if we're giving out Nobel Prizes for discoveries, just think about how much more intrinsically wonderful and valuable are the things that are actually discovered. Who gets prizes for that? Jesus. Mm -hmm. Not to be overly religious, but the heavens declare the glory of God, and that's where you and I both agree um, that regardless of whatever recipe God used to make the solar system, finding out the recipe and the methods do not eliminate God from a explanation, a legitimate explanation for why the universe is the way it is. And that's why the earth is habitable it is. It's it's a purposeful design. Well, Wayne, that'll that's uh, it's a good fifty five minutes we've been yakking about the the solar system. Uh, we're going to put a link to your uh, PowerPoint, right? Is that what yes, you want to do? We're on my website. It's creationanswers.net. and uh, it goes into a lot more detail about what we talked about today in terms mm-hmm. of if you're interested in more delving into the science aspect of things. Uh, leave a comment. Uh, if you want to discuss things, you can email us. Uh, you can email me. The email address is up there. If you want to sponsor Good Heavens, I will send you my mom's or my grandmother's pie recipe. Uh, speaking of which, Wayne, I have an apple pie for you in the car. So. <laughs> All right. Very good. Thank you, man. Speaking of which, I just want to say really quickly thank you to you and to Lee and to Paul and to Alan and to uh, Byron, Chip, and the Colbys uh, for helping me. Uh, you guys uh, helped out in getting me into a new car. So thank you. That's, uh, that's, that's God's economy. That's God's universe is when people come together to help each other. Well, good heavens. How about that? Yeah, so you get, uh, I get a car and you get a pie. That's a pretty good trade, right? Okay. <laughs> no, but that's how the body of Christ works, and it's wonderful when it works the way it should. So uh, anything else you want to wrap up? Uh, this is pretty, it's been a year, so congratulations on, a, another, on a full year of podcasting. This is we'll, great. We'll keep it going. All right. We will see you next time on uh, Good, Good Heavens. Heavens.